Okay, so if you are here, you're a guest here, it's great to have you here with us. If you're, particularly if you're here for a friend or family of one of the people being baptized, lovely to have you here with us at Hope Church this morning. Uh, We've been working our way through Luke's Gospel, and uh, we've come to chapter 18, and this morning we're just going to look at an incident uh, that's recorded in this chapter. And uh, we're going to be reading it through together as we just unpack it together and see what an amazing person Jesus is and how he transforms and changes lives and how he challenges us about uh, our own relationship with him and how we relate to him. I don't know about you, but we've all uh, met uh, characters, haven't we, who just seem the business. You, you meet people and you, you think, wow, they're an impressive character. And uh, there was, uh, uh, we're going to hear today about one such character who on the surface looked the business. I don't know if you've heard about uh, Sam Bankman uh, Freed. Uh, he started a company uh, called FTX. It was a crypto, uh, cryptocurrency uh, sort of uh, exchange company. And uh, they floated, and within a couple of years, uh, the company in January 22 was worth 32 billion pounds. Amazing. I mean, he was really impressive character. People clearly trusted him, and they were pouring their money in to uh, his company, hoping that they were going to make more money. Within a year, uh, the company had gone bust, and he'd lost it all. Um, because basically he was gambling with other people's money and moving it around. Looked really an impressive character on the surface, but under the surface he wasn't all that he portrayed. Today we're going to read about a rich man coming to Jesus. It's a story that's repeated in three of the four Gospels. Clearly God wants to get our attention. And it's really relevant to us who live in a very materialistic Western society. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that this man was young. He was uh, wealthy, but he was young. Uh, Luke uh, says that he was a ruler, that he had some sort of authority Luke also says that he was very rich. In in Wales, I'm from South Wales, we would say he was one of the krachach, one of the posh people. Most commentators refer to him as the rich, young ruler. At first glance, he's impressive. He's upright. He's influential and well-to-do. In Jesus' day, people uh, believed that success and prosperity were the direct result of God blessing good behavior. In truth, we all like to think that good people deserve to prosper in life, especially us. And so we get particularly grumpy when we feel that we've been living a good life and things don't work out well for us, don't work out in the way that we want them to. It's just not fair. If we live a good life and things go wrong, it's not right. Despite everything going well for this young man, this rich young ruler seeks Jesus out because deep down he knows there's something missing. So he comes to Jesus for help. 
with all his influence, with all his wealth, with all his authority, he comes to Jesus for help. He's humble enough to admit that he hasn't quite made it. What a guy. Jesus is going to love this guy, isn't he? What unfolds is uncomfortable viewing. I don't know if you've seen programs, which there's some programs I can't watch or listen to. I put my fingers in my ears. I can't look. It's just so uncomfortable because you just, the, the conversation, you watch The Apprentice, and I'm like, I can't bear it. I just can't bear it. These, these well-to-do people, they talk about themselves. I, I just put my fingers in my ears, and Annie's going, what are you doing? I, I just can't listen to it. It makes uncomfortable listening. It's uncomfortable viewing. Here, Jesus lets an impressive character walk away. The disciples and the crowd are shocked. The American pastor Tim Keller says this, if we have not been shocked, if we haven't been shocked and unsettled and challenged by Jesus, then we haven't met the real Jesus. Phil Moore, the Christian writer, based in the UK, in his book, Gagging Jesus, says, if we're not careful, we can settle for a tamed and domesticated Jesus, a gagged and bound Jesus. I wouldn't say boo to a goose Jesus, a Jesus of our own making. But he isn't the real Jesus. Today, we're going to encounter the real Jesus. We're going to unpack the disturbing incident of the rich young ruler and hear what Jesus wants to say to us. It all starts with a telling question. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark tells us that he actually runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees. Most religious leaders of the day are rude to Jesus, and you can read that through the Gospels. Not this guy. He clearly thinks highly of Jesus. He bows, he addresses him, good teacher. It might be flattery, might be flannel, but I think he appears genuine. He seems close to becoming one of Jesus' followers himself. Something is bothering him. Something is stirring him. Something's niggling at him. He's He's anxious about what's going to happen when he dies. Maybe Jesus knows something that's going to help him. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Matthew says. After inheriting wealth, he now wants to inherit eternal life. What does he need to do? Throughout the New Testament, we see that uh, re the religious Jews were steeped in legalism, in keeping the law. The better they behaved, the more they kept the law, the more that they were acceptable to God. Relationship with God was dependent on how they lived and how they behaved. This man is no different. If Jesus tells him what to do, he'll sort out the rest. His question tells us what he really thinks about Jesus. Jesus is little more than an advisor. It also tells us how highly he thinks of himself. If you tell me just what I need to do, Jesus, I can do the rest. 
I remember years ago living in Swansea. My parents were uh, living in Antwerp at the time. And uh, I, was, uh, I was looking after the house, allegedly. And I remember coming home one night, and uh, I got home, I put the key in the door, twisted the key in the lock, and the key snapped in the door. Couldn't get in. My parents are living in Belgium. What am I going to do? Don't have a spare key? Uh, so I'm wandering around the house, and I, I see there's, a, a, there's a, a toilet window open. The window is, is sort of that sort of size, and I was a lot younger and a lot slimmer. And um, I thought, I can get through that door. I can get through that window. So I stood, and I was with someone else. I stood on the bin, and I managed to get my head through, and I've got my arms through first, and I wriggled my way through. But as I was going through, I was nearly in, but what happened? The window, which was, uh, was open, as my body went through and my backside went through, it started to do that. And as I got right through it, it caught my feet. So I'm hanging by my feet, trapped over the toilet. I'm stuck. I can't go anywhere. I can't get. I can't move. Can't get in. All I needed was just the person with me, just to flip the, the window up, and I fell in. That's what this young guy is thinking is going to happen. All he needs is just a little hand to get in. That's all he needs from Jesus. He's nearly there. He's done it all himself. Jesus is about to drive a cart and horses through his thinking. You see, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, isn't something that we need to add on to living a good life so God will accept us. It's not like a can of Red Bull to give us more energy. It's not like a ladder extension just so that we can reach just that little bit further. The gospel says that we are dead to God. We're dead but God offers us life. We're lost, but we can be found. We're blind, but we can receive sight. In Ephesians, Paul says that we are dead to God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, our sins, our wrongdoings, everything that separates us, from God. It is by grace you have been saved. Not of your efforts. It's all a gift from God. Dead men can do nothing to save themselves. The man's question leads to a revealing answer. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Have you ever had someone, people coming up to going, hey, I mean, it'd be great if it happened more, so it takes me care People come up to you and they go, hey, Steve, you're amazing. <laughs> you're just amazing. The thing is, when people say that, inside I'm thinking, if you really knew what I was like inside, if you really knew what I was like, I'm not that amazing. But Jesus here isn't being self-deprecating. He's not arguing semantics with this guy. Why do you call me good? He's challenging the man's thinking. Good teacher was an extraordinary thing for this guy to call Jesus, for a religious Jew to say to Jesus, because a religious Jew knew that only God was good. Jesus is implying 
you may be flattering me to get what you want. But in fact, you have come to the only person who can rescue you, who can save you. Obliquely, Jesus is saying, I am good, I am the Son of God. And as we have been reading through Luke's gospel over these last months, we've been seeing that Jesus only does and says the things that God would say and do. Jesus heals the sick. He raises the dead. He forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. He calms storms on the Sea of Galilee. John, in chapter 5, verse 19 of his gospel, says that Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. His close disciples begin to realize bit by bit that Jesus really is the Son of God. This rich young ruler has come to just the right person. This morning, we're baptizing five people. Five people who have come to realize that they needed Jesus in their lives. They needed a relationship with God. They knew that he could help them in a way that no one else could. And as they've come to him, they found out that he is far more than they ever imagined or thought. He's not just a good teacher. They have found out that he is God's answer to our problem as hum- human people. Everything that separates us from God, Jesus has dealt with so that we can draw near to a Father in heaven who loves us. And we find that out through Jesus and through Jesus alone. Jesus' answer is revealing. And what we see is that this young man has made a good attempt. This is what it says. Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness honor your father and mother. Listen to what he says. I've kept all these from my youth. Have you ever thought you're doing something really well and found out to your cost that you weren't doing it as well as you thought you were? I have moments when uh, I'm doing something and uh, I think I'm doing really well and then Annie points out how poorly, in fact, I'm doing it. I saw like, oh, I thought I'd done really well. When I, I, I think I've remembered something and, and, and I'm so smug that I've remembered and it's the wrong day. <laughs> and you're like, oh. This guy is about, he's, he's smug. I've kept all the, from my youth. I mean, what Jesus says to him initially this is what the guy wants to hear. Ah, oh, rules, regular, yeah, I do that, I do that. Oh, oh, I'm actually pretty good, aren't I? He's God-fearing. He knows the commandments. He's lived a pretty good life. Jesus quotes from a passage about the law in Exodus and highlights five of the six of the last ten, command, of the ten commandments. The bar is high, but this guy is smugly confident to talk about how well he's done. It was a good attempt. But it wasn't good enough. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. 
Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I remember when being in maths classes in school and uh, I remember giving my best answer and I remember the, the teacher just laughing in front of the class and making fun of me well-deserved because they were terrible answers, but I, I thought I'd done my best. And he would make fun of me. Jesus doesn't do this with this guy. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't say, really? Really? He doesn't put him down. Actually, Jesus implies that he's probably lived an okay life. Jesus hones in on the one thing he still lacks. The man, this young man, knows there's something missing, but he's just about to find out what a big issue it is. It's far bigger than he ever imagined. Jesus is like the expert surgeon starting emergency surgery to cut away the thing that's eating away at this guy's life. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, in Mark's account, Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him. The Greek implies that he looked at him intently. He stopped and his eyes penetrated right into the very heart of this young man's life. He saw him as he really was. He saw what was going on under the surface. He saw the ugliness inside. In Revelation uh, chapter 1, we read uh, an incident where John, the gospel writer, is at the end of his life. And John has a vision of the glorified Jesus. He has walked with Jesus. He's the disciple that we're told that Jesus loved. He's got a great relationship. He knew what it was like. And then he has this day when he's on this prison island. And life hasn't been going well. And he sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the one who's gone back to heaven in all his glory. And he, he falls at his feet as though dead. And he describes what he sees. And he says, this Jesus has eyes of burning fire. Eyes that penetrate right down to the very heart. Eyes that penetrate our defenses. He sees through what we think are good motives and intentions. He sees the ugliness deep down in our hearts, our pride, our selfish ambition, our anger, our unforgiveness, our greed. Jesus sees right down on, sees what sits on the throne of this man's heart. What's the most important thing to him? He sees it. What about us? He sees us this morning. Jesus looks down and sees into our hearts and lives. He sees us as no one else sees us. We may be well hidden. We may look like we're doing really well to everybody else around us. But Jesus knows what's really going on deep down. And the question is this. Is Jesus our treasure? Is Jesus the most important person to us. See, this man thinks he's done well. Jesus takes him right back to 
Not the tenth commandment. He takes him back to the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me. God must come first. Suddenly, the rich young ruler realizes he's not doing so well after all. Because wealth defines him. He loved being rich. He'd been born into it. It was his God. Without knowing it, he worships wealth over and above the God who gave it to him in the first place. At the center of his heart is something in the place that only God should occupy. Rather than keeping the commandments, he'd been breaking them. Jesus says, loving God with all, with all our heart is the greatest commandment. And if we break that, we're breaking all the rest of the commandments. This young man has fallen way short. He's not close at all. He is far from God. By giving away his wealth, Jesus is asking him to trust God to meet his needs. Who or what sits on the throne of our lives? Friends? What we look like? Relationships? What's our main focus? Is it finding the dream job? The ideal partner? The career? Settling down? A family? Building, buying a home? Maybe it's promotion. Maybe it's buying a bigger home. Maybe it's helping our kids through university. Maybe it's planning weddings. Maybe it's grandchildren enjoying retirement, holidays, cruises. None of those things are wrong unless they usurp the place that God should have in our hearts and lives. The sense of shock in this story is palpable. Jesus' disciples are shocked to the core. They expected Jesus to receive this young man with open arms. He was an ideal candidate to be a follower of Jesus. But Jesus expects him to die to his old way of life. That's what baptism signifies. So as these people are getting baptized today, as they go into the water... They are signifying that they are following Jesus. Just as Jesus died and, uh, on the cross for us and was buried in a tomb, as they go into the water, they're saying, we're dying to our old way of life. As they come out of the water, they're following Jesus who rose to new life. And they're saying, I'm going to follow you and live for you. It doesn't mean that the, the past is wiped out. Everything has changed. But no, their focus is different. Jesus is center stage. That's what baptism means. They're saying, I've given my life to Jesus and I'm going to follow him for the rest of my days. This story of this rich young ruler has challenged people of every age. In the 13th century, St. Francis of Assisi was a rich young man. He read this passage, he was so challenged, he sold the warehouse, was disinherited by his family, and started the Franciscan monks who, who give away their wealth to support and bless others. Jesus still probes hearts today. 
He's not impressed with anything less than wholehearted devotion. He won't be squeezed into our plans for our life. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Jesus challenges us this morning. You see, this young man gave the wrong response to the right person. We read, after he heard this, he he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This young man who leaves Jesus' presence sad, it's the only occasion that we read someone leaving Jesus' presence sad. I think sad is probably an understatement. He's appalled. He's gutted. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that the young man's face fell. The irony is he's come and asked Jesus what he needs to do. And then when Jesus tells him what to do, he refuses to do it. I want you to hear this. Wealth and money aren't bad. In the New Testament, there are people of means playing positive roles throughout the gospels and throughout the book of Acts. Jesus doesn't say what he says to this young man to any other disciple. The issue is, in this man's life, is the love of money. It's not having money, it's the love of money. The love of money is above his love of Jesus. You can love money and have nothing. It doesn't take much money for it to be a real danger to faith in Jesus and following him. You see, Jesus loved him, we're told. But Jesus won't cut corners. He lets him walk away. Billy Graham, the 20th century evangelist, says this, This young man came with the right question to the right man and received the right answer, but made the wrong decision. The challenge to us is not to do the same. I think it's interesting. What, we don't know what happens in the end of this story. But I want to suggest maybe it's not the end. Clearly when Peter denied Jesus and seemingly walks away, Jesus restores him later, comes and restores him later. This young man can still return. And Jesus doesn't stop loving him. Many people walk away from God and church, sad, offended, and grumpy. Annie and I have watched many people over the years, people we deeply love, walk away from their faith. But we are reassured by the truth that Jesus still loves them. And so we continue to pray and ask God to be merciful and to come to them again. Because it's all about grace. 
Those who heard what Jesus said asked this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We can't get over the line. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. But what is impossible for us is possible with God. See, the disciples are so disturbed. If this guy isn't saved, then what hope do we have? And Jesus' point is this. It's not down to you. It's down to God. The impossible for us is a door of hope for the God of the impossible. It's all about grace. It's a free gift that all we need to do is receive. I put my trust in you, Jesus, for what you did for me on the cross. You see, at the end, he's worth it. Jesus is worth it all. He is amazing and he's worth giving our lives to and for. Peter says this, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, brothers or sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Jesus is saying God is no man's debtor. God demands everything but promises so much more than any of us can ever imagine. If you follow Jesus, like those being baptized today, life will never be the same. Who knows what God will do with our lives? But the question is this, is he our treasure? Is he everything to us? He can be today, if you put your trust in him. If you receive him as your personal savior, you say, Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. I can't do anything myself, but you did it for me on the cross and I put my trust in you. You're my treasure. And if we come to a place where he is our treasure, we find out amazingly that we are his treasure. We find out that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. More loved than we could ever dream of. How amazing is that? I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, which is powerful and rich. And I pray that this incident, this disturbing incident with a rich young ruler is there to provoke us and challenge us that we wouldn't walk away, but that we would come to you, fall on our knees and say, you are my treasure, Lord Jesus. I put my trust in you. And I pray today that you would speak to each and every one of us, that we would be those who put you, keep you on the throne of our hearts. First place, we worship you. Amen.